Let me invite you this morning, take your, take your Bibles and make your way to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. We're continuing in our study through the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, today we begin in verse number 12 and we're going to come down through verse number 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 through 17. The title of the message this morning is Grace for the Worst of Sinners. Grace for the worst of sinners. And we're going to see that from the Apostle Paul and the wonderful grace and gospel that he describes here this morning. Notice in verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a passage of scripture this is. It is rich with the gospel of God's grace. When we think about the grace of God, what is the limit <clears throat> to the power of God's grace? Well, if you know me, you know that's a ridiculous question, right? What's the limit to the power of God's grace? There is no limit to the power of God's grace. You see, God's grace has been seen in example after example of his saving of sinners, terrible sinners, the worst of sinners, that we might imagine <clears throat> throughout the scriptures and also throughout church history. Most of us have probably heard of the man known as John Newton, who lived from 1725 to 1807. He's the author of the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. It's one of the most well-known hymns and beautiful hymns ever written. But did you know that John Newton, before he wrote that hymn, he was a filthy, wicked, and vile, vile man. From the time he was young, he was a sailor, and he eventually became heavily involved in the slave trade. He led a life of profanity, of sexual immorality, of hard-heartedness, even just leading others to unbelief and doubt. He was known as the great blasphemer. The great blasphemer. But his mother was a believer. She had taught him the scriptures growing up and had prayed for him. However, she died when he was a young boy. And though John Newton had rejected his mother's teachings, initially her teaching the scriptures would prove fruitful later in his life. A long story short, Newton found himself at sea in the midst of a life-threatening storm. The storm was... Terrible. It was terrific, as some may describe it. And when the ship went plunging down into the sea, few on board expected her to come up again. The hold was rapidly filling with water. And as Newton hurried to place to his place at the pumps, he said to the captain, If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. His own words startled him by using the word mercy. <laughs> he thought to himself in astonishment, he said, Mercy. Mercy, what mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire that he had ever noticed for mercy. And shortly after this event, Newton came to truly know the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, grace reached down to one of the worst or lowest of sinners in John Newton. And you can see how meaningful the grace of God is to him just in the hymn that he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. 
John Newton began making changes to his life. He held Bible studies with the sailors. He left the trade, slave trade business. He became a minister and had a great influence on the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. From men like John Newton to the many examples we see in the Bible itself, grace and its power has no limitation. Grace always effectually works in those whom it is meant to. You see, our passage before us is a plain and obvious testimony of the grace of God in a man we know as Paul the Apostle. Now, just to give you a backdrop as we're coming into this chapter, recall that Paul's been writing to Timothy in the opening of this letter, charging him not to allow different doctrine to be taught in the church in Ephesus. Why is that? Because there's only one gospel of grace that saves the worst of sinners, and it's the gospel of Jesus as it's been delivered to us from him. You see, the problem in Ephesus had to do with false teachers misusing and adding to the law of God. We looked at that last week. But Paul concluded that the law of God is good when used lawfully. And one way it is used lawfully is when it reveals the sinfulness of man and the holiness of our God. The law shows us we are guilty, we are condemned, and we are in desperate need of grace. Because we have no salvation outside of that. And with this thought in mind about the gospel that Paul has been entrusted with here, he proceeds to describe the grace of God that both saved him and set him apart in serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And understand this today, church, that the same grace that saved and transformed Paul here is the same grace that saved and transformed you, if you know him today. And it's the same grace that will continue to save and transform sinners until Jesus comes again. Aren't you glad about that, church? What do we see from this text? I want to point out a few things for you. The first thing I see here is Paul's thankfulness to Christ. Paul's thankfulness to Christ. He is thankful, firstly, for his calling to serve Christ in the way that God has called him to. Now, before he comes into his conversion and talks about salvation, he, he expresses his thankfulness to the Lord for using him in the service of the gospel. Now, in verse 11, understand that he, continuing on what he had written, the context flowing into verse 12, he just told Timothy in verse 11, he mentions the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Now, what does he say about the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? Paul says that he has been entrusted with this gospel. God has trusted him with the gospel of Christ that saves sinners. So, so Paul here, understand that, that he sees his calling and his responsibility with the gospel as the highest of privileges and honor that he could have. It is not a light matter to him. It is not uh, some little chore delegated to him. He understands that being entrusted with the gospel is a life commitment for him. That he must guard it with his body and blood. That he is willing to go to the grave for the sake of the gospel. And so in verse 12 he writes, he says, I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his Service. You just unpack some of the details here with me for a moment. The first thing I'll note is that Paul says, I thank him. I thank him. You see, Paul has a heart that is overflowing with thankfulness to the Lord for all that the Lord has done for him and how the Lord has chosen to use him in his life. Now, many do not view the gospel ministry as something to be thankful for, but indeed it is something to be thankful for. You see, the gospel ministry that Paul was entrusted with, that God continues to entrust to other men, that he is entrusted beyond just the men who pastor and lead, he's entrusted to the church overall. The gospel ministry is not some grievous task it is the glorious privilege of the saints who have been changed by Christ. See, in Paul's case, he is an apostle 
holding an office that was very limited and very special, very sacred. The Lord only chose certain men to serve in this office. And Paul felt himself immensely unworthy of such a calling. And yet it is, it is his by God's sovereign choice alone. You see, a heart of thankfulness is woven into the whole of this passage as Paul describes how he serves Christ and how he's been saved by Christ. And Christian, I just think about this for our own selves. Should it we, should not every saint redeemed by the grace of God be thankful to the Lord for what the Lord has done? You ought to praise him and thank him every day that you're a child of the King because it's only by his grace that he has saved you but not only should you thank him for saving you, you ought to thank him that he uses you in your Christian life for his glory and his service. Notice this text that Paul says. Not only he says, I thank him, but he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Who has given me strength. What strength does Paul have to fulfill the calling placed on him outside of the Lord? He has none. He has none. Whatsoever. You see, Paul had an immensely successful ministry. And Paul's ministry success and fruitfulness, understand, they were not dependent upon his natural ta talent. They were not dependent upon his high level of education or maybe the latest fad of what Christian ministry might should be. Paul viewed his ministry as according to this, Christ's strength. The strength of God. Now, by all means, if someone has natural talent or a high level of education, you understand that those are gifts of God that he may use, that he may employ in a person, and that's what he does. We're all uniquely made and gifted for the service of the king, however he sees fit. But understand this. They are nothing without Christ. They are nothing without Christ. You see, early on after Paul, later, earlier known as Saul, is converted, we see the Lord strengthening him, enabling him in what he's called him to do. Acts 9.22, the Bible says that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I don't think he's talking about physical strength. He's talking about his spiritual strength, his maturity, his enablement to rightly handle the gospel and to preach it and to teach it to others. You see, Paul both learned and understood this, that it is only in Christ Jesus the Lord. These, these names and titles, Christ being the anointed Messiah of God, Jesus the Savior, Jehovah who saves, Lord meaning his authority and, and reign over him, Christ Jesus the Lord, he is the source of strength for him in his life for Christ and his service to Christ. You see, all that is needed, both for conversion and for Christian living, it don't originate in you. It comes from God himself. Because he's the God of grace. Remember this, Christian, that with God's calling always comes God's enablement. God called Paul to an impossible task in his flesh, but not an impossible task with the Spirit. And you understand the same applies to you even in your Christian life. It's impossible for you to live the Christian life in your flesh. But you don't have just your flesh, do you? By conversion, who do you have? You have God, the Holy Spirit, who enables you and helps you and grows you, sanctifies you, matures you. We have nothing without him. And so Paul understood this. That we needed the strength of God. And he exhorted the Ephesians. The same church he's writing to in 1 Timothy, through Timothy's letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Ephesians 6.10. So we must understand and acknowledge as Christians our own weakness. And look to the Lord of strength for our Christian life and service to him. Notice that Paul next says here of Christ that he judged me faithful. You understand that Christ knew Paul's heart and zeal for God. Now, this was evident prior to his conversion, except his zeal and faithfulness then were aimed at the wrong target, <laughs> going the wrong direction. 
He was striving against the God that he thought he was actually serving. But once Paul was converted, Christ would become his all-consuming zeal and fire. Paul had a heart for his God. And Christ judged Paul faithful in that he knew, yes, even ordained, that Paul would be the faithful man he would be. In fact, in Paul's last letter, we see his faithfulness to the very end. 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, as he's nearing his own death, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul was indeed faithful to the Lord to the very end, even being martyred for Christ. And with all of this in mind, Paul says it is the Lord's doing in appointing me to this service. You understand that God alone has the sovereign right to appoint whom he pleases to serve in whatever capacity he's pleased with. God chose Paul for this and put him in that position. He is a chosen instrument. And Paul is deeply thankful for how God has chosen to use him. Now, this brings some application to us, to myself, to you. Do you thank the Lord for the privilege it is to be his servant in whatever capacity that may entail? You understand that being a servant of Christ is not limited to those that stand in a pulpit and go to the mission field. Every church member, every Christian is to be a servant of Christ. To live your life for him. Do you see that as a privilege? Do you view serving Christ as a privilege, as an unworthy honor placed upon you? You should. Sometimes we may grow ungrateful because we're tired of ministry and Christian living. We complain about having to serve the Lord rather than thanking him that we get to serve the Lord. You understand that you don't have to come to church. What's the right way to say it? You get to come to church. I don't have to stand before you and preach. I get to preach. You don't have to do this and that. You get to do this and that. So don't take for granted, church, the little ways that Christ has called you to glorify him. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to glorify him in your home, in your church, in the workplace, in your community with your spouse, with your children. Don't take for granted the little ways Christ has called you to glorify him. For in truth, even in the little things in our eyes, all things done in the kingdom of Christ are big things. Which brings me to letter B, that Paul is thankful considering his opposition to Christ. Now, here's a, this is what enhances his thankfulness. He's thankful for how God's chose to use him. But notice that Paul's continuing this line of thought about being thankful and called to serve in this same sentence in verse 13. And he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. See, the last sentence here, part of this sentence, enhances why he's so thankful to serve Christ. It's because of who he was and what he was doing before he actually met Christ. Who was Paul before he met Christ? He says, I was a blasphemer. What is it to blaspheme? To blaspheme means, refers to one who is defaming, who is, uh, who is denigrating, who is demeaning in their words and actions, particularly towards Christ and God. Now, there is a lot of blasphemy today of people who demean and dishonor the name of God and the work of Christ. You don't have to look very far. Just turn on your TV and you'll see it. God's name used in vain, the cross mocked. You see, this is what Paul did as a lost sinner. He not only blasphemed in his own actions and words, he sought to get others to do the same thing. Join in with me in my blasphemy was his motto. Acts 26, 11, he confesses this and says this in his testimony. He says, I punished them often. And in all synagogues, and tried to do what? To make them blaspheme. He tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
He wanted Christians to denounce the name of Christ. Do you understand that all through history that's been the goal of the world and they fail all the time? Christians go to the grave confessing Christ as Lord because they refused to renounce who Jesus was. He goes on to say, I was a persecutor. What's he a persecutor of? He's a persecutor of Christ and his church. Christ and his church. You see, the history of the early church in the book of Acts shows us how vicious Paul or Saul was. What he did. You see, when when, when Stephen was stoned to death, guess who stood there giving his approval and holding the coats while others took up stones to cast them? Saul. Same guy here as Paul. We read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 through 3 this persecution that is, that, is, that is spearheaded by Saul himself. The Bible says, And Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was the name you didn't want to hear was coming near. He was vicious. Soon again we read of it in Acts 9.1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. That's when he went to get letters of authority to go to Damascus and get Christians there. He was a mean machine working hard against the church and against Christ. And thus he says, I was an insolent opponent. You know what it means he's an insolent opponent? Insolent refers to a violent person. Paul has blood on his hands. They're the very brothers and sisters that he's going to meet in heaven one day. You think about that for a moment. Paul entered heaven through the cheers of those he martyred. That's how the gospel works. See, Paul was a violent enemy of Christ. Now understand this, that every person, before they're converted, they are an enemy of God. They are against God, having internal hatred of Him. Now, sometimes this is manifested violently, Outwardly, like in Saul's case. But other times it may be more reserved as just having disdain for the truth of God. I really don't want to hear that. Go your way and leave me alone. I don't need that. That is still hatred of God and his truth. We read this in the nature of man. We read this in Sunday school, John 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. No matter what way you slice it, man in his flesh is hostile towards Christ. Hostile. And Paul in his past life demonstrates this beyond doubt. And so considering who Paul was and what he did... How in the world could this man, this man, ever become an apostle and even go on to be, what some would say, the greatest missionary to walk this earth? Who is Paul? That he would be the one to be given such a holy position who was such an unholy wretch. See, Paul was a nobody just like everybody else. The only difference in Paul becoming an apostle of Christ is this. It is grace alone. Grace. See, Paul was a recipient of God's grace that saves and sanctifies the worst of sinners. And so Paul describes this office with such utter humility. As you read in 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read these to you, verse 9 and 10. Listen to Paul's thoughts here. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. He always views himself as unworthy and the least of all of them. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10 says it all, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. 
and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Christian, understand today that you are who you are today by the grace of God alone and none else. John Newton, the man we mentioned earlier, rightly said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul has thankfulness here. Which leads us to number two, we see Paul's testimony in Christ. Paul's testimony in Christ. Paul recognizes. Paul recognizes what he has received. That's what you must know. He recognizes what he has received. What exactly has Paul received? Paul says twice through this text, I received mercy. I received mercy. Verse 13, he says, But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. You see, against the backdrop of his former hatred and persecution of Christ, he says, I received mercy. What is this mercy he talks of? We know that mercy... It is the compassion of God bestowed upon his people. God set his heart upon Paul to show him compassion, to remove from him the misery and judgment that he is worthy of for his sin. Mercy is a foundational aspect of the gospel of Christ. Were it not for mercy, there would be none of us here saved today. Paul says in his letter to Titus, Titus 3 and verse 5, He saved us not because of our works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing renewal of the Holy Spirit. He says it is according to mercy. And the same applies to grace. Notice in verse 14 that Paul says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We also are very much aware of what grace is, aren't we? Grace is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. What's that mean? It means God's favor towards you can't be earned. You can't do anything to gain it. You can't work for it. You can't be better to get it. It's unearned. It's also undeserving, meaning you're not worthy of it, but yet God in His grace bestows it upon you. You're not worthy. You see, His favor should never be shown towards you, yet grace gives you His favor. And yet, what does Paul say here? He says the grace of our Lord has done what? He says it has overflowed for me. He's not been given just a little teensy bit of grace, but grace overflows. You ever had something that's overflowing and it's just wonderful? One of my favorite restaurants to eat at is Five Guys Burgers and Fries. I can tell some of you are with me. Maybe not. Best burger ever, in my opinion. I love to eat Five Guys Burgers and Fries, and why? Well, one reason, they have the best burgers, in my opinion, but another reason is that they always overflow the, fr- the fry carton. You order small, you're going to get enough that will fit in a large. And those Cajun fries, they're a weakness for me. So if you ever want to get on your pastor's good side, take me to Five Guys, and I might pray a little harder for you. They're overflowing. Now that may, that's a silly earthly illustration. You think of anything overflowing going beyond the bounds of what we normally might think. And when it comes to the grace of God, understand this. There is no way to measure the grace of God. It overflows beyond our comprehension. Overflows beyond our comprehension. Because with this grace, notice, and mercy come the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Understand this, that Everything required and needed for conversion and the Christian life is the result of God's overflowing grace. We have only just begun, Christian, in this life to taste the depths of God's grace. 
as Paul rightly wrote to the Ephesians, keeping the same church in mind here that Paul's writing to through 1 Timothy. Listen to this. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we, we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So that doxology goes on to verse 14. Go read it later. But this just gives you a glimpse into the overflowing grace of God. And Paul, deep in his heart, recognizes what God has bestowed upon him in saving him. Now, why did Paul receive this mercy? Especially since he was such a vicious enemy of the gospel. Paul says in this verse, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Isn't that the state of all who are lost in their sin? It most certainly is. There's a twofold problem for the lost, including Paul, before he knew Christ. The first problem is ignorance. The lost in their unregenerate state are indeed ignorant of the truth of Christ. Jesus said in his own words of those crucifying him, in Luke 23, 34, he said, Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. Now, they think they know what they're doing, but they actually don't. That's the nature of deception and darkness. You think you've got it all right and figured out, but you actually don't. The light bulb needs to come on. And for the lost and unregenerate, the light bulb is on. And so you understand with Paul, even if they have the right knowledge of Christ, as in the facts of what Scripture says of him and what he has done, they are still ignorant of this truth because they do not believe the truth as truth itself. This ties us to this second aspect, is the problem is unbelief. You understand, no one will or can believe except grace transforms the heart, granting them faith to believe. Scripture plainly teaches that. Because acknowledgement of the facts isn't the same as faith. Knowing the facts and denying their truthfulness is most certainly faithless. And this is who Paul was. You think Paul heard that Christ died on the cross? Of course. You think Paul heard that Christ had risen from the dead? Of course. Guess where he was? He was there at Stephen's sermon. He heard one of, the most, one, of the, one of the best sermons ever recorded in Scripture in Acts chapter 7. Go read it. Paul knew all the facts. He knew the claim that Christ had died for sin. He knew the claim that Christ had risen from the dead. He knew all the true facts about what Christ had done. But he did not believe them. He did not believe them. And there are many who know the facts about what Christ has done, but they do not believe. They do not trust in him he is ignorant in his unbelief his refusal to believe the truth about christ makes him all the more ignorant and condemned jesus said in john three eighteen, whoever believes in him speaking of christ is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of god but what really is paul saying here with the reason God was merciful to him. I want you to understand this, because some may misinterpret it. He is not saying that his ignorance and unbelief were excusable or warranted God's mercy. Most likely, Paul here is contrasting himself with the false teachers. When Paul was so opposed to Christ, he had not yet professed faith. These men who are troubling Ephesus, they have professed faith in Christ and yet still live in an evil manner and are deterring people from the gospel. Now keep in mind the context of the chapter and what the early church had in conflict much of. Many who professed faith in Christ came to deny Christ in their seeking to change the gospel or leave it altogether. In fact, Hebrews warns of those who profess truth in Christ only to depart to their own destruction. 
Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Paul was not a false professor, but a fierce persecutor acting in ignorance. And in this state, Paul received grace and mercy. Mercy was bestowed upon Paul because God sovereignly elected to do so. You understand, Paul didn't receive mercy because he just got better or he changed his mind or he made a better decision. You understand that he was struck down on the road to Damascus against his will. And I'm glad God does that. You know why? Because my will and disposition and my sinful state is always going to be the opposite of God. You understand? Paul, Paul didn't go on the road to Damascus. You know what? I think I'm going to accept Christ on the way to kill Christians. Christ struck him down. Explain that one. It's called sovereign grace. Paul received mercy because of sovereign grace that struck his heart. Otherwise, he would have rode on to Damascus pursuing and persecuting Christians. And Paul here gives us this to show that he is forever grateful to God for this. And so should we be. Because were it not for the intervening grace of God in your heart and life with the gospel, you would be trotting the path of darkness just like the rest of the world around us. Ignorant and in unbelief. Which leads us to letter B, what Paul affirms here. Paul affirms what Christ has accomplished. And what a glorious verse this is in verse verse 15. Oh, he makes a beautiful statement that magnifies Christ. And the purpose for which he came into the world. He says in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You notice that Paul mentions this saying that's trustworthy. He he uses that language in several other passages. He'll say, this saying is trustworthy. He, He uses that to emphasize a great truth. And what is the great truth he's saying here? It's this statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. Here we see the core, the very essence of the gospel, the reason Christ came to the world. Now we could expound this one statement all day long. But let me bring out just a few things from this one statement that we see. One, I want you to understand that Jesus came into the world, which means that he did not originate in the world. You know what that teaches us? Him coming into the world not only shows us his incarnation, but his pre-existence. Christ is not just another Jewish man that was born and was religious and did something good. He is the eternal God who stepped into time and history and took on humanity to do what we could never do. He is the God-man, the Word, the eternal Word who was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is God in flesh. And as Jesus told His opponents in John 8, 23, He said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. But secondly, this statement only shows us that Jesus Came into the world, which means he did not originate the world. But it also shows us that Jesus came to the world with a specific mission. And that mission was to save sinners. Now, for salvation to be true, the righteous demands of God's law and justice had to be met. And thus we read of Jesus in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman... Born under the law. To redeem those that were under the law. So that we might receive the adoption as sons. You understand, because he came to the world the way he did, because he's God and not just a mere man from Adam's line, only Jesus could live as no other man could live. And how is that? Perfect, sinless, obedient to God's law, to every jot and tittle. 
And because he could live in that way, only he has the authority and capability of paying the penalty for sin. Of atoning for sin on the cross. And thus we read, this is what he did. He gave his life, his body, his blood in agony. Terrible, horrific form of crucifixion. And he gave it in place of his people, of sinners like you and like me, to atone and pay the penalty they could never pay. But it doesn't end there. His atonement means nothing if death still holds him. Which leads us to the third day. He had to overcome death. Or else sin would remain triumphant. The third day after he died for sinners, he triumphantly rose from the day dead. And this is the gospel in a nutshell, Christian. That Christ came into the world, he died for sins, was buried, and the third day he rose again. He is the victor. He is the conqueror of sin and death. Which brings us to the third thing I bring out of this one statement is this. Is that Jesus would not fail in his mission of saving sinners. Now many today think that Jesus came to make salvation possible. No. He came to make salvation actual. He came to accomplish salvation. This is the purpose for which he came to the world. To guarantee that sinners are saved. It was said of him before he was born, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he might save his people from their sins. You know I'm not reading that right. He will save his people from their sins. There's no, there's no doubt. There's no gray area. There's no question mark there. He will save his people from their sins. And so by means of Christ's sinless life, his definite atonement, his triumphant resurrection, and his ongoing conquering of sinners with the gospel, Christ does not fail to save his people. And church, that gives us all the confidence in the world. That Christ is the one who saves, and it's not us. Jesus, the good shepherd, will not fail to save his sheep. He described it this way in Luke 15, 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine open in the country and go after the one that is lost? And watch these last few words. Until he find it. He doesn't give up. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. You understand that he has not paid such a high cost not to receive what he bled for. Christ does not fail in that which he sets out to do. And that evidence is plain that sinners are saved. Sinners have been being saved for 2,000 years since the cross, and they're going to continue to be saved by God's sovereign grace until Jesus comes. And here is the great immeasurable truth for Paul that he affirms here. It's that Christ saved a sinner like him. How does Paul describe himself in this verse? Notice that he calls himself the foremost of sinners. What does he mean by the foremost? He means that he is the greatest or worst or chiefest of sinners. He views himself in this light because of who he was. He views himself as the worst of sinners. He sees his sin for what it truly is and knows that he owes everything to the grace and mercy of God. And the truth remains today, Christian, that every single one of us in this room, we are great sinners. You're good at sinning. You may not be good at many other things in the world, but there's one thing you're all good at, and that is sin. And I know y'all are good at a lot of other things in life. But we are naturally gifted at sinning, aren't we? Because of our sinful nature. We are good at sinning. And I bring that to your attention to say, consider how great your own sin is and how great it is that Christ has saved you. John Newton rightly said, the same man we referenced earlier, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. 
Notice with me lastly, I'll try to be quick. Paul's truth about Christ. These last couple of verses that he communicates, Paul's truth about Christ. I want you to see two quick things. I want you to see the first thing he mentions, and that is that the patience of Christ is displayed in Paul. You come to verse 16. He says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You notice that Paul describes Christ as a perfect patience towards his sinful people who are going to believe on him in the future. So how often do we look at Paul as an example of God saving some of the worst of sinners? He's a great example. We preach it. It's in the text. Scripture lays it out for us to preach it that way. But oh, how patient was Christ with Paul, but not only with Paul, how patient was he with you? He has the right to destroy every sinner right now. But he's patient until those whom he has redeemed come to him. And we see a couple things in this. First, we see that Christ is patient with sinners, not because he's just hoping that some will come to believe on him, but because he knows they will believe on him. He's ordained that. Christ has not left the success of his atoning work into the hands of sinners whose will is only to reject him. He's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands hoping that sinners come to him. He has already made sure of it. When you look at the grand and big, big picture of things. And so Peter kind of brings out this long-suffering aspect. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now often this passage is applied to Every person on earth as if God is waiting for every person to be saved. He's patiently waiting and restraining his divine judgment. Well, that interpretation makes no sense theologically or logically at all. Especially since the whole passage is about God destroying the wicked. Who is the Lord patient unto in this text? He says it is you. Who is the you Peter's talking to? It is God's people. He's the, they're the recipients of the letter. God's not willing that any of his people perish, but that he's redeemed by Christ's blood come to him. And so John says, and Jesus says in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. See, Paul even himself had great patience and endurance in the ministry because he knew that God was going to save people through it. 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, the second thing this statement shows us is that Christ can, does, and will continue to save the worst of sinners from our perspective. You know what that shows me? I don't need to view people as a lost cause. I need to view them as an object of divine grace that can change them. You see a great sinner, consider how great your Savior is. Pray for them, witness to them. You see, God endures endless blasphemies against his name, rebellion, lies, cheating, uh, sexual immorality, murders, the, all, the ongoing breaking of his law. And all the while, he waits patiently as he calls his redeemed to himself. It is not impotence or slackness that delays final judgment. It is his patience. Christ is patient. And Charles Spurgeon rightly says in relation to the great grace of God that goes beyond what we can conceive. He says, oh friend, the great grace of God surpasses my conception and your conception. And I would think, have you think worthily of it. Last and finally, you can say amen because I'm not lying. We're almost done. But Paul concludes in verse 17. I want you to see the person of Christ is magnified by Paul. To close this section. What, what better way to close this section, right? Verse 17. He describes and magnifies the person of Jesus. He says to the king of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You understand that Jesus is the king of the ages. There's no king but him, and he has all power and authority for all eternity. 
He is the immortal. He has no beginning and he has no ending. He is the invisible God. God is invisible in his bare essence. He took on flesh to make God visible, but God is invisible in his bare essence for he is spirit. And I like this too. Paul says the only God. You know what that means? There's no other gods but this one. None but him. And to this God, he says, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May we today, church, see the depth of God's grace bestowed upon even the worst of sinners. Paul is an example of that. He says that he is saved for that example himself. That he, in him, might be displayed the perfect patience of God towards sinners. If you know Christ today, rejoice because you've experienced this grace. But if you don't know Christ today, understand that his grace is not limited by your sinfulness. His grace can save you too. The scripture calls upon every sinner everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And if you repent and believe the gospel, you owe that to the grace of God. If you don't, that's all on you. Grace is amazing, and let us magnify it today. Let's stand to our feet. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the amazing grace that you have bestowed upon us. Father, we often don't think and meditate on it enough. How much more joy and peace we ought to have if we just think and ponder and praise you and thank you for the grace that you've given. Thank you for those who have been saved here today. But there may be others here today that are lost in their sins. That have yet to come to see their sinfulness and your holiness and who Christ is. And that they are in desperate need of his saving work. Father, I don't know the hearts of anyone, but you do. And Lord, you have told us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. I pray, God, that you would work in their heart. Convict and draw. Help them to see. Give them a new heart. Grant them faith to believe on Christ and know of a surety that they have been saved by your grace alone. Help us who know you, Lord, to rejoice, to go on our way magnifying the glorious gospel of Christ by which we ourselves are saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.